0: On April 29th, 1945, it was a Sunday afternoon, American GIs encountered for the first time the horrors of the Nazi concentration uh, camps. Before they even entered, they counted 39 railway cars just full of dead bodies. That's before they even got into the camp. Uh, they were just left there. That, that was just the beginning, right? Uh, on entering the camp, they saw what we all know now as history. Uh, The atrocities that met them, you are aware of, and they were beyond their comprehension. As they passed the Nazi soldiers that still remained in the camp, you can imagine the thoughts that were going through their heads. Why would somebody do these kinds of things to another person? But probably more importantly is the question, how? How in the world can somebody do this to another human being? This last week, there was an Ask Me Anything on Reddit uh, by a man who was 92 years old. Two years old. He was a survivor of the concentration camps. He was a prisoner uh, in several of them. He was imprisoned when he was 18. He was liberated when, he's t- when he was 21. He's 92 now. And he spoke of those very first few days being transported on a cattle car packed with people. There's no food, there's no water, there's one bucket in the middle of the train car. You can imagine that. He said the smell was horrendous. After six days, the train finally stopped. The Nazi guards, when it, when it stopped, they counted out 300 men. 300 men were allowed to get off. Everyone else was sent on. They ended up being taken to Auschwitz and killed. He said when they counted out 300 men, his number was 298. He said he will never forget that number, and we can understand why, right? Right? The G.I.'s question, your question, my question, how can people do this? There's a book entitled uh, Less Than Human. It explains that even ordinary people can do extraordinary, uh, crazy, demeaning things to other people, and you only need one ingredient. You don't have to be a psychopath. You just have to be good at dehumanization. That's That's the term, dehumanization. In other words, you have to be good at calling other people names, labeling other people, putting other people below you, and making sure that you come to believe that your victims are less than human. The book says this, thinking about your enemies in subhuman categories is a way of creating mental distance, of excluding them from the human family. It makes murder not just permissive, but obligatory, because after all, we should kill vermin and predators, okay? Relabeling people is powerful. The early American settlers did this with Native Americans. They called them savage beasts. The Japanese invaders of China called their victims chancoro, which means something like a bug or an insect. Before 1994 Rwandan genocide, the Hutus who killed the Tutsis routinely referred to them as cockroaches. right? And the Nazis would refer to their Jewish prisoners as rats. Sometimes, when they were feeling charitable, they would call them by their names, which were nothing more than numbers. Our 92-year-old survivor's number was 177153. When we slap dehumanizing labels on people, it is much easier to strip them of their dignity and to mistreat them. And so, what, what we need to come to realize is that this behavior is nothing new. It's been around forever, and it still exists. It's always existed, even in people we look up to. A quick example is in Luke chapter 9. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus and his disciples, who we kind of look up to, they're in a Samaritan village. And the Samaritans that they are preaching to are not receptive to Jesus' message. And so James and John come up to Jesus, and they say, and they're, f- they're famous for this line, Jesus, do you want us to call fire down on them? Which is partially hilarious because they thought they could, okay? But it's also very sad because it's almost surely racially motivated, almost surely. We know that because just a, ch- a few chapters before, there was a similar reaction in a Jewish town called Nazareth. They didn't, reject, they didn't accept Jesus' message either, but James and John didn't come forward to call fire down on their Jewish brothers, now did they? But these Samaritans, that's a different deal. They're half-breeds. Their daughters were called cradle menstruants. I will leave that to your own research. Let's just say it's a very derogative term. Uh, It meant that Samaritans were perpetually unclean and not fit to worship God. They're vermin, and they need to be, be exterminated, so let's call the fire down. This is nothing new. Even the American GIs, 50 years later, 50 years in the 90s, They will recount what really happened that day. They didn't just walk in. They didn't just walk by the Nazi soldiers in disgust. They chased them down. They bludgeoned them with their guns. There are even reports of firing squads. And while they did that, they called them Schweinhund, which means pig dog. And isn't it a tragic irony? That the American GIs took part in this downward spiral. The same actions that they found so repulsive in the Nazis. Hear me in this. I am in debt up to my eyeballs at what these guys did for me. And you are too. But it's reality that no one escapes. It's a trap. And it's a trap that everyone falls into. You me, we cannot divorce ourselves wherever we go, whatever field we walk out on, whatever room we walk into, whatever road we go down. There is this craving within us to be better than others who occupy the same space. In order to be better than, what do we do? We assign names, we put labels on people, we run others down. We point out their faults. We tell everybody what's wrong with the system. Not to them, of course, not face-to-face, but to other people who need to be better than as well. Are we tracking yet? Have we been there? We are stepping through the book of Acts. And uh, today, uh, I'm not going to look at a specific text, but instead I want to look at a theme that's found throughout the book of Acts. There's this amazing thing that happens in this book. Wherever the gospel goes wherever it goes, this battle, this inner craving to be better than stops in its tracks. It's dead. And what's more, old labels for people are replaced by new ones, and it happens everywhere that the message of Jesus is preached and accepted. Very quickly, let me run you through four examples. There are Dozens that we could point to. Acts chapter 6, we find a dispute that pops over uh, up between two groups. One group perceives that the other group thinks that they are better than. And the apostles swoop in, and because of the gospel, the apostles send a clear message to this group that feels inferior. This is your church too. You are important, you are equal, and better than stops in its tracks. In Acts chapter 8, we find a guy named Philip, a Jew, going to Samaria. And we read it and we gloss right over it. And he's preaching the gospel in Samaria. But do you realize what just happened? Here is a Jewish man taking the message of Jesus to the scourge of the Jews, the Samaritans. Because Jews had always felt better than the Samaritans. You want us to call fire down on them? But now, better than doesn't exist. In Acts chapter 10, there's the next group of people that the Jews had probably even more contempt for than the Samaritans. They are the Gentiles. Gentile just means somebody who is not Jewish. How many Gentiles do we have in the audience today? Probably about everybody, yes. Gentiles were seen by Jewish people as defiling. And so Peter, when he is asked to go to one and tell him what uh, he has to say about Jesus, he's hesitant But because God starts working, Cornelius, this Gentile, and all of his Gentile house, accepts Jesus, and they are baptized. And after all of this works out, uh, Peter stands back and he says, I understand now the God that I serve. I understand that he shows no partiality and better than, because they were baptized, is dead in the water, literally. That's pretty cool. One more from Acts chapter 16. One of the lowest places on the social ladder in the first century was reserved for women. Women were even excluded from the innermost temple court. They could not give a full expression of worship in the temple because they could not go into the innermost part. Only a Jewish man could do that. And yet, in Acts chapter 16, there's a woman named Lydia. She becomes one of the main characters of the book of Acts. And Paul, as he's preaching to this woman, doesn't even consider that he's better than. And he introduces her to Jesus. And it will be Paul later that will write, There is no Jew or Greek. There is no slave or free. There is no male or female. Because all are one in Christ. Now, there are a lot of other examples we could point to. There are other dividing walls that get torn down, whether they're religious walls or economic walls or social walls, all kinds of ethnic walls, all kinds of things get torn down. But the bottom line is that wherever the gospel goes, this better than problem dies. People are told, this is your church too. They are people who were used to being demeaned and shut out and rejected. But for the first time, they are told, no, you are a child of God. And they are called this by the very same people who used to call them property and dogs and half-breeds. And my question is this. How is that possible? How does that work Do you realize how many people in our culture are searching for a solution to this problem? All you need to do is take a look at some headlines. You've heard of Black Lives Matter. You've heard of I Can't Breathe. You've heard Safe Space. You've seen Rainbow Flags. You've watched a Super Bowl-themed halftime performance that was Black Panther Party-themed, right? Okay? You hear constantly the words tolerance, inclusion, diversity. And here's my question. How are these movements doing? Are they bringing about the equality and acceptance that is being chased after? Well, yeah. I mean, we've we've made a little progress. But at the end of the day, we have just as many issues as we've always had. And yet... Here's the deal in the book of Acts, wherever the gospel goes, this issue is solved. And so what that means is that all of our attempts as a society to solve this better than problem are only attempts to do what the gospel has already done. I cannot underscore that statement enough. The gospel has already done this. It's the solution that we're after. And so the next question is, how in the world can that be? How can the gospel solve better than? How is that possible? Anthony Evans says this, racism isn't a bad habit. It's not a mistake. It's a sin. The answer is not sociology. It's, what's that word? Theology, theology. Okay, so let's talk a little theology. I'm going to give you a theological statement. We'll unpack it. Here's the theological statement that I'm going to make. Christianity is exhaustively inclusive because it is absolutely exclusive. That's the statement. Who said that? Let's work backwards. Jesus said this. John chapter 14, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. When we talk of Christianity being exclusive, we mean it's exclusive in its means, in the way that it works. There's only one means. There's only one way to be right with God. There aren't several paths up the mountain. There's only one. Jesus said, I'm it. It's exclusive. He's the only way. In Acts, the disciples said it this way, and I read it at the very beginning of our service. They said, There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Why? Because only Jesus' life and death can pay for sin. Being good enough isn't good enough. Being religious isn't enough. Being nice isn't enough. Only Jesus is enough. We could say it this way. We aren't good for God. God is good for us. He is good in our place. God is good for us. That's how it works. It's exclusive, okay? Now, that truth has tremendous implications for what we're talking about because our culture is tied to what we do and who we are. And if salvation is attained by something that I do, by my own goodness, then it would affect my culture, who I am, and what I do. And it would probably be the case that I would have to abandon my culture in order to be saved if salvation was attained by my good works. Let me explain it this way because everybody's eyes are glossing over. I could see it. How many of you like to wear hats? Yes. How many of you like to wear... uh, I don't often wear a hat, but when I do, I like to wear a baseball hat. And this is the best baseball hat ever. (laughs) Right? Especially with the gold KC. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Okay. Now, some of you may not like to wear baseball hats. Maybe you like to wear what's next, a fedora. Anybody? Not many takers? Okay. All right. What's next? What do we got? A straw hat. Any any straw hat takers out there? Very there a couple. Couple straw hats, okay? We got a stocking cap. Anyone? Yep. There's some stocking cap people. We've got a hard hat. Got a lot of those around town lately, right? Uh, how about a top hat? Probably the wrong century, right? Uh, two centuries late. Cowboy hat. Yeah, there's some of those. Okay. Now, let's say let's just let's just propose that salvation is attained by the hat that you wear okay no big deal the next question is what hat which hat will get me salvation and the wheel in the sky turns tick 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 and it lands on straw hat there are two people in here that will be saved because they like wearing straw hats now We all, the rest of us, who like wearing these other hats, we could be saved, right? If we give up our hat and we start wearing straw hats. Does that make sense? It's a good thing that salvation is not by wearing hats. Salvation is by Jesus, and we are given it by grace. If that's true then nothing that I can ever do can win salvation because it's already been won for me in Jesus. And no amount of hat wearing, whether it's straw or baseball or hard hat or top hat, none of that, matters no matter how much of my culture i'm willing to part with or how much of somebody else's culture i'm willing to accept i cannot win salvation that has already been won this is all the way through acts you say where are you getting this hat stuff it's in the book of acts do you realize who the main enemy is in the book of acts as you go through who's the main enemy to the gospel if i were proposed to that that question to you you would probably say this uh, it's got to be unbelievers. It's got to be people who were idol worshippers who worshiped some other god. Those are probably the main enemies of the gospel. And it is true, they are in there. But they are not the main enemy. Do you know who the main enemy to the gospel was? Christians. Christians. What? What, what are you talking about? Christians. Yes, I should say a certain kind of Christian. They were Jewish Christians who were so confident in their belief that everyone who becomes a follower of Christ also needs to become Jewish. You want to be saved? Jesus is a good start, but you've got to wear the Jewish hat. That's the enemy of the gospel in Acts. And Luke spends the lion's share of the book telling us about this problem and how the early church dealt with it and how did they deal with it at every turn, they said, nope, that's not it. It's Jesus. It's Jesus alone. There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Nothing you can do can win salvation. Gentile believers, you don't need to become Jewish. You don't need to put on the Jewish hats and the Jewish customs Nothing you can do can win salvation. It's already been won for you. Only Jesus can win salvation. And so, in doing this for us and giving it to us by his grace, God allows us to keep the parts of our culture that we love and we cherish, even though may, they may be different from other cultures. And the best part is we can use our culture, whatever hat we wear, to worship God. And so, if you go to India, you will find them using their culture to worship God. It's like metal sticks and something that looks like jingle bells, but they're worshiping God with those things. And if you go to Africa, people will worship him with great drums and great beats and great dances because that's their culture. And if you go to Scotland, people will worship him with bagpipes and kilts. I have no idea why, but this is what they do, right? And if you come to America, we worship him with electricity. Electricity, right? Plug in the lead guitar. That's an American thing, right? Is the exclusiveness of Christianity? It's only through Jesus that allows Christianity Christianity to be the most inclusive movement ever. That's awesome. That's the theology, and that theology will change our lives. Martin Luther King, when he was talking about the parable of the Good Samaritan, said this. He said, the Good Samaritan, when he encountered the man left on the road by robbers, he saw him as a human being first, who was a Jew only by accident. He said, the good neighbor looks beyond the external accidents and discerns those inner qualities that make all men human and therefore brothers. I love that phrase, external accidents, because that's a good test for us. Do you remember James and John? who came up to Jesus, said, let's call fire down on these people. What they were seeing when they did that were the external accidents. They were seeing foolish people, Samaritans. That's what Samaritans were called by Jews, foolish people. They were seeing the least of nations. They were seeing people who were forbidden from the temple. They were seeing people that we should treat as Gentiles, that we shouldn't even eat with them. We definitely shouldn't marry them. Many scribes in the Jewish faith would not even utter the term Samaritan. And so centuries before J.K. Rawling came up with he who must not be named, the Jews were doing that. That nation that must not be named. Jews would go around the country of Samaria to avoid Samaritans, even though it made the trip longer and it's understandable that James and John want to call down fire, but Jesus is not about destroying people. He's about destroying the walls that divide them. And so it's the same Jesus in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, who says to these very disciples, these same two guys, I want you to take the gospel, and I want you to go to Jerusalem, and then I want you to go to Judea, and then I want you to go to, anybody know it? Sam- Samaria. Samaria. And in Acts chapter 8, the gospel does go there and they accept it. The Samaritans accept the gospel. What? That's kind of, what? We, we need to go check that out. The, the leaders in Jerusalem church say, we need to go check that out. And so they send a couple guys. Look who they send. They send Peter. They send John. So John goes off to Samaria to check out the Samaritans I wonder what his thoughts were. I know what he used to think, but now he knows the gospel. The same John who determined that these people were subhuman half-breeds and that should should be exterminated, let's call fire down on them, now he knows the gospel. He knows it's not his Jewishness that matters, it's Jesus and that changes his identity, it changes his actions. These people are brothers and sisters. They are not half-breeds. They are children of God. He doesn't just go and check it out, though. In verse 25, it says that he and Peter spend some time in Samaria preaching to other villages. Isn't that awesome? The end of the story is this. Many scribe, many scholars will say that when John later writes his gospel that bears his name, the gospel of John, it was influenced It reflects, especially when it comes to what he writes about Christ, it reflects, get this, Samaritan influences. What does that mean? It means he went back. He hung out with them. He lived with them enough that they came to influence who he was. Because all are one in Christ. How does somebody change like that? here's the key. Remember the gospel. That's it. Remember the gospel. How can I look at somebody who is different from me and say, this is your church too? Remember the gospel. A crucial step in remembering the gospel is this table that we come around every week. The table is about reminding ourselves that Jesus made room for us when there was no room. But also, and just as much, its purpose is to remind us that we have opportunities to make room for others at this table. The table is designed so that there's always one more chair. Have you ever been in a place where there weren't enough chairs? You go off searching for chairs. This is never one of those places. There's always another chair. There's always one more place at the table, and that place is likely to be for somebody who you feel is a Samaritan in your life. But if you believe the gospel, that it's only by grace and Jesus' sacrifice that we're saved, if you believe that, then you'll find the ability to To hold the chair for them and to honestly look in their face and say, because of what Jesus has done, I'm saving this seat for you. Would you come and sit beside me? Because I don't belong here either. Isn't it awesome that we can both be here? It's because of Jesus. We are the same in our need. Don Carson says this. He says, the church is not made up of natural friends. It's made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, nationality, accents, jobs, or anything else of that sort. Christians come together because they've been saved by Jesus Christ. We are a band of natural enemies turned into friends who love one another for Jesus' sake. Christian love is mutual love between social incompatibilities. Will you remember the gospel today? I'm going to have the band come out. And during this time, I want you to do three things. And these three things are to help you remember the gospel today. And remembering the gospel is the only way for you to overlook the external accidents in other people and see brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Here's here are the three things I want you to do. Uh, We're going to have guys on the bus come And play three songs, okay? And during those three songs, I want you to do three things. Number one, I want you to worship. I want you to worship. Number two, I want you to share in communion. And there are communion trays all around the auditorium. Uh, I want you to go to a station closest to you. If there's somebody around you who you know can't get to a station, would you serve them today? Would you go and get communion for them and bring it back to them? Okay? Okay? And then third, and this is, this is the hard part. Hey, guys on the bus, come on back. <laughs> uh, this is the hard part today, okay? Um, I want you, during one of these songs, you can do this in any order, okay? If you want to take communion first, great. If you want to worship second and then do this, or if you want to do this first. The third thing is, I want you to tell somebody, I want you to go, go to somebody in the auditorium. And I want you to look them in the face and I want you to say, I'm so glad that because of what Jesus has done that you're a child of God and this is your church too. I'm so glad that, that you're at the table, that there's a chair for you. And it is, isn't it awesome that we can both be here because neither of us belong, right? Surround the table, worship. And go engage with somebody. I'm going to turn it over to the guys. I want you to stand. Let's worship.